Now, I don't want anybody calling out here, but quick quiz to start the morning this morning. Um, hand up if you can tell me the name of Australia's first Prime Minister. Just put your hand in the air if you can tell me the name of Australia... Oh, can I, can I say that's pathetic? Come on, you don't know the name of Australia's first Prime Minister. We've got probably half the people here can put their hand up and say it. Edmund Barton was the name of our first Prime Minister. Fine picture of uh, Mr Barton there. Next question. Hand up if you can tell me the name of Australia's first Governor-General. I'm not... Oh, I've got one hand going up. All right, I'm going to have to ask you, Nola. Do you know the name? No, 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 no. He was he was a, he was Australia's first Australian Prime uh, Governor General. First Governor General of Australia was Lord Hopeton. This gentleman here served as Governor General for three years, and in, and in some ways a more significant figure than our first Prime Minister. He was the man who established the first government in this country. Here is our first head of state. Yet his name is a trivial pursuit question. No one really remembers. Well, we're looking at another figure today. We just read about him there in the book of Hebrews, who in some ways is a trivial pursuit figure from the pages of the Old Testament. There's a grand total of four verses that mention Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Three of them are in that Genesis, in a Genesis passage, and one in the book of Psalms. If you were to read through the Old Testament... I think it's highly likely that you wouldn't even notice Melchizedek in there. He's such a a little bit player, but when we reach the book of Hebrews, the writer wants to tell us he's an incredibly significant figure. In fact, he devotes well over a chapter to talking about him. Melchizedek is mentioned eight times by name here in the book of Hebrews, yet only twice in the whole of the Old Testament where he actually appears. I'm only guessing this, but I, I think that the original readers of this, of this letter to the Hebrews, when they heard the name Melchizedek, were probably saying to themselves, I'm sure I've heard that somewhere, um, but I can't think exactly where. But what the writer wants to show his friends is that this is the solid food that they need to be chewing on. They need to be understanding that those things that happen in the Old Testament, those promises that God made in the pages of the Old Testament, find their fulfilment in Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes all of those things complete. As I said last week, uh, sometimes it's a little bit difficult for us to relate to the idea of the priesthood. We, We don't really see how important a priest would have been. We're not familiar with it, we didn't grow up with it, it's not part of our experience. But for the people reading this letter, it was an intimate part of their experience. They understood it completely. See, the priest was involved in every aspect of your life if you grew up in Israel. If you got a little bit of a skin complaint, a little bit of a rash on your skin, you went to see the priest. If you found some mildew in your house, you went to see the priest. Do you know what you do just after you've had a baby? You go and see the priest. Uh, If you've come in contact with a dead body, then you need to go and see the priest. See, the priest was connected to every aspect of your life because the priest was the one who helped you to remain in a relationship with God. It wasn't just the sacrifices that the priest offered. Every aspect of your life was covered by the priest. 
He was the one who helped to maintain your relationship with God. But in national Israel, one whole tribe, there were 12 tribes in Israel, one whole tribe were devoted to being the priests, the Levites. And one man from among that tribe who had to be able to trace his ancestry from Aaron, the very first high priest, he had to be able to get that family tree out and show that he was directly related to Aaron, he would be the high priest. The high priest had a vital role in the life of national Israel. He was central to their role. And as I said last week, he had that dual role. He was the one who represented God to the people, but also represented the people to God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, and Jesus is perfect for that role. He's the best possible person that you could have in that position. Because he's the man who is God. He understands us because he became one of us. And he understands God completely because he is God. He's the ideal middleman for us, the ideal one to stand between us and God. But for the Jewish Christians that were listening to this, there would have been a question going through their heads. How can Jesus be our high priest when he's not from the right tribe? He's not related to Aaron. He can't chase, trace his ancestry there. Jesus was from a completely different tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. Now, that might seem like a trivial nitpicking question to us, but it's actually a really important question. Has God switched the rules? I mean, can you trust God if, if he says he's going to do it this way and then all of a sudden says, you know what, we're going to do it this way now? How can you trust a God who changes the rules without you even knowing it? This is really a question of God's faithfulness that's at stake here. If God has said the high priest is always going to come from the line of the Levites, the high priest will always be able to trace his ancestry back to Aaron, then how can Jesus be our high priest? It's a significant question. So the writer takes his friends back to the story of Abraham. Now Abraham as you know, is the founding father of the nation of Israel. He's the one, the individual to whom God said, I'm going to make you and your descendants into a great nation. The promises I'm giving to you, Abraham, will be handed on. And these are the promises that find their fulfilment in Jesus. With Jesus coming as our high priest, God hasn't changed his plans. He hasn't shifted the goalposts. And the writer wants to stress that God is completely faithful and completely reliable. Now have a look at uh, chapter 6 of Hebrews. I hope you've got your Bible open there at Hebrews 6 and 7 are the two chapters that we're going to be focusing on. Chapter 6 and verse number 17, look at what the writer says. But God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. I think the writer's wanting to say, God hasn't changed his plans. Let me explain to you how this works. God's God's purposes are unchanging and God does not lie. And then he introduces this to the character of Melchizedek. Now let me briefly tell you the story surrounding Melchizedek or what we have of it in Genesis. 
Abraham had gone off to rescue his nephew Lot, who'd been kidnapped by some other kings. He goes to rescue him, and on the way back, after rescuing Lot, they bump into the king of Sodom, but they also bump into this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as the name says, as, as it says in Hebrews, the name means king of righteousness. Melach means king, Zadok means righteousness. So he is the king of righteousness, and we're also told that he's the king of, says Salem in our translations, but it's really Shalom, the king of peace. So the king of righteousness and king of peace is this man's name. Uh, and this is what it says in Genesis. I won't get you to look it up, but you can follow it on the screen. So we're just heading back. We've never met Melchizedek before. We've never heard anything about him. And this is where he appears and, can I say, disappears as well. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, bought out bread and wine. He was the, he was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This mysterious figure pops up out of nowhere and then disappears just as quickly as he appears. But did you see that he's a priest of God most high? I mean, Abraham's the one to whom God has made these promises. Abraham's never even met this guy. But we're told that he is a priest of God most high. And not only that, he blesses Abraham. And it always works that the greater blesses the lower. So he's the one who acts as that representative, speaks on God's behalf. He blesses him in God's name. And Abraham's no dummy. He recognises how significant this guy is. And before there are any laws about tithing in place, Abraham knows that he's got to give a tenth to this guy because this guy, he's the real deal. He's the priest. So he gives a tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek. So he's not just a priest of God. Did you notice that he's the king twice? His name is King of Righteousness and he's the king of Salem, king of Shalom, king of peace. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. But the thing to notice here is that Abraham knows who this guy is. Abraham recognises him as a priest. Without hesitation, he gives him a tenth of everything. And just as quickly as he appears, he disappears. Comes up one more time, Melchizedek's name, in the pages of the Old Testament... I think I've got it here. Psalm number 110, verse 4. Uh, this is a psalm of David. We've jumped ahead quite a couple of hundred years. Melchizedek lived about close to a thousand years before David wrote this psalm. And David's talking about the Saviour who is going to come, the one that God will send to rescue and to lead his people. And it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This saviour, this rescuer is going to come and he's going to be a priest, but not in the order of Levi, not as a descendant of Aaron. He's going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We haven't even heard Melchizedek's name for a thousand years and all of a sudden he pops up again here in this passage. David knows what type of priest it is that God's going to send. It's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. 
So for those, from those verses, Abraham meeting Melchizedek and, and that verse in the Psalms, the writer wants to say, do you see how Jesus is the one who joins all the dots? Do you see how Jesus is the one who pulls all of those threads from the Old Testament together and he comes as that priest in the order of Melchizedek? The one who's going to rescue God's people. The one who is the king of righteousness. The king of peace. In a sense, I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is a super high priest. He's even better than those priests in the Levitical order. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Have a look at what he says. Chapter 7 and find verse 11 and then we're going to jump down to verse 18. He wants to say that the priests in the Levitical order, well, they were actually flawed and human priests. Verse 11 of chapter 7. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the laws were given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? And then down to verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Perfection wasn't going to come through the Levitical priesthood. And he goes on to explain why perfection wouldn't come through the Levitical priesthood. See, the priests in the Levitical priesthood, they were just like us. They were sinful people. And worse than that, they were going to die one day. So even if you had a great high priest who was really good value and really understood the people and really represented God clearly, the day would come when you'd be at their funeral. And you'd be wondering what the next one would be like. I wonder if he'll be as good as the last one. Or will he be just like us? But look at what he says, chapter 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And then jump back to verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's the type of priest that Jesus is. A priest forever who's lived that indestructible life. But more than that, look at verse 24. Jesus is the one who can save us completely. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And verse 27 Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints high priests 
uh, sorry, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. When the priest turned up at the temple, the very first thing that he had to do was make some kind of a sacrifice for his own sins and then he'd, have, he'd make the sacrifices for your sins. But guess what? You'd be back there in a week. You'd be back there in a, in a month, in a year. You'd be sacrificing for your sins again. But Jesus has made a sacrifice for sins once and for all through his death on the cross. He's the perfect high priest. Jesus is the one that all the other high priests were foreshadowing. They were just a, a dim image of what the real thing looks like. Now, I've got to say, I, I really do think this is the most complicated part of the book of Hebrews. It's an argument that's a little bit lost on us because, like I said, we haven't grown up with the priesthood. We're not familiar with that sort of thing. And, and I'm not sure, you, even when we were listening to the Bible being read clearly and well... The logic of it wasn't altogether clear, was it? I mean, it's hard to follow. But in the end, there's two verses in here that sum up what the writer's trying to say. And they're found in chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. For all of the complexities that there might be in there, that's the point that he wants to make. God is faithful. We've taken hold of the hope that he has given us in Jesus and Jesus is a firm anchor for our souls. See, the message for his readers, it's exactly the same as the message for us, isn't it? God's faithful and we who needed to find a hope because we couldn't generate one for ourselves, we found that hope in Jesus. And Jesus is that firm anchor for our soul. 